All right, good morning. Just in case that we missed there um, with the children, if, uh, if you have little ones, uh, they are welcome to go back to Children's Church there, kindergarten through third grade. Um, we're heading back to the back, down that hallway up that way, so you'll hear them in just a moment. <laughs> so, uh, so we're working our way through uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, as you can see, a little bit different today. We kind of skipped over some verses, not that we don't believe those are part of the Bible, just want you to know that. Um, we had a little skip there because we're going to go back to that little passage, 13 through 16, uh, for Easter. And so that's, that's kind of why we kind of jumped around a little bit there. But we're going to continue our series here in the book of Hebrews and uh, work our way through looking at the subject of faith. So let me, uh, <laughs> I have loose leaf Bible now. Literally, it just came out. I'm like, oh, look at there. Okay, so, um, no. <laughs> I like it when my Bible words out. That's a good thing, right? All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. Um, I pray, God, that you would uh, help us as we study through this passage, God, to, um, to see what, God, you want us to see. Give us hearts to believe. Give us minds um, to think. Give us um, hearts that are pliable, ears to hear, God, um, what you have to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as we work through this uh, Hebrews 11, all about faith, uh, we've discovered uh, thus far that faith is, is simple, and yet, uh, yet faith is very profound. Uh, we've discovered that it is uh, easy, and yet very difficult. It is often misunderstood, and yet it's really clear. Uh, some say, we looked at last week, some say faith is just something that's blind. Others say it's something you're just kind of born with or without, right? You either have faith, you're raised in it, or you're not raised in it. Others say that it's just kind of for the weak. Others say maybe it's for just kind of the daydreamers who refuse to kind of live in reality. They just kind of look for another world and are not much good in this one. All kinds of statements that are made about people of faith today. But as we began our study of Hebrews 11, uh, we found that faith is much different uh, than culture would have us believe. Uh, Faith involves, as last week looked at, reservation, meaning the idea that it involves doubt and questions. Um, If you're going to have faith, you're going to have questions, you're going to have doubts, you're going to work through those. It involves reasoning, uh, serious thought. It involves response. We saw uh, the worship of, a- of Abel, uh, response to the gospel. Uh, it involves reaching, like Enoch did, who believed that God not only existed, but rewards those who seek him. And it also involves a bit of risk-taking. Faith involves that risk-taking like Noah, who built a boat, right, 500 um, miles away from any body of water and faced the ridicule of his culture as a result. And today we're going to look at faith by examining Abraham. We're going to examine Abe and his family. And here's the thing. We won't find a Red Sea parting. We won't find lion's jaws uh, being stopped. We won't find a giant uh, collapsing to the ground. But instead, what we're going to find is that faith involves a lot of uncertainty, a lot of difficulty, and a lot of struggle. It's good. It's good when we think about faith, right? Because that's where we live mostly. That's where a lot of our lives are lived. We don't live a lot in the part of the Red Sea moments or the lion's jaws stopping or giants falling down, right? A lot of life is in uncertainty and suffering and difficulty. And that's where I love about Hebrews 11 is it kind of takes us through that part of life. And so it's good for us to understand this. Abraham's entire life was one of suffering, one of uncertainty and difficulty. Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the greatest lessons of Hebrews 11 is that everyone experienced uncertainty, and yet, though flawed and though sinful in many different ways, they lived great lives because of their faith and impacted this world for good as a result, right? And that's how we see every single person is mirrored for us here. So today we're going to look at how to understand faith better, we're going to understand how to build on the faith that we have begun to look at, 
We're going to, as we talked about last week, hold that diamond of faith up to the light and kind of spin it around, look at the different angles, uh, different sides of it, and uh, see how that works out. And so uh, today we're going to look at the following. Faith involves rebellion. Again, this may not be how you'd usually categorize faith, but I believe that's part of it. Involves rebellion, resolution, uh, the ridiculous, relinquishment, and remittance. Okay, we'll look at each one of those. I know I like it to alliterate, so we're just sticking with the R's from last week. You're going to have more R's next week. We're just going all R's all the way through Hebrews 11, all right? All right, number one, faith involves rebellion. Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. So Abraham, let's think about him for a moment. Abraham, he's liked by a lot of people, right? He is, uh, not only do you have three major faiths uh, today calling him their father, right? You have Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, but also he is used more than anyone else in the New Testament as an illustration of faith. Did you know that? There's no one in the New Testament used more as an illustration of faith than Abraham. He's used uh, by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He's used by Paul in Galatians, Romans, and Corinthians. James talks about him in his letters. Uh, Peter talks about him in his letters. And in Hebrews, Abraham's mentioned four different times. Chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 11. All right, so he is a, he is a perfect illustration for us of what, what it means to have faith. And what we find here is that Abe teaches us that faith involves rebellion. And I don't know that sounds, it may sound strange to you. But if you take the definition of what rebellion is, it is just someone who refuses to conform to the culture that they're in, right? They're not interested in conformity. A lot of times it's used in kind of a pejorative way in our culture today, but when your culture is ungodly, that means that God's people must what? We must rebel against the culture, right? So rebellion is actually part of faith in that way. Um, And think of Daniel and his friends. What did they do? Daniel and his friends, they rebelled against the culture. They refused to follow along with the culture and bow the knee to the gods, right? And so they faced the consequences, but they went against the culture. They rebelled. We, the same way, Abraham, the same way. And so while everyone in culture lives by sight, Abe, and subsequently us as Christians, lived, live by faith. And while everyone in our culture pads their life with security and comfort and ease, Abe, and subsequently us as Christians, pad our life with sacrificial giving and service and sacrifice, right? This is very radically different from the culture, Let's look at Abe here. He, he left his homeland one day, as the text tells us. He left it. Just got up, and he left. Okay, think about that for a moment. Uh, for some of you seniors in high school, that may be something you experience this summer. Maybe something you walk away from, right? You, it'll be adventurous. As you, maybe you head off to college, uh, full of acceptance, you know, and all this anticipation of what'll be happening. You follow through, though, with maybe an acceptance letter. It says, hey, you know where you're going, right? All right, I got an acceptance letter to Purdue uh, or Indiana. I don't want to make anybody upset today. Either one. And, uh, you know, and you're heading out there and you know where you're going. Well, Abraham got called, but he didn't know where he was going, right? I mean, that's a little bit, a little bit risky, right? He had no clue really where he was going. Acts chapter 7 tells us that he left his country and his people. So that means he left everything that he knew. He left the comforts of home never to return again and not really knowing where he was going. Now, where was he from? He was from a land called Ur. It's just U-R, Ur. It was an ancient city of Mesopotamia, about 4,000 years old. Archaeologists have found, by the way, discovered this this culture, the city of Ur, was very culturally advanced. They discovered that it had elaborate systems of writing, uh, sophisticated mathematical calculations, educational facilities, and extensive business and religious records from 4,000 years ago. It's pretty fascinating. 
Um, the city itself was uh, dominated by a massive three-tier, they called it a ziggurat. Uh, you may see a picture up there on the screen. It was dedicated to the worship of their moon god. All right, that's what they did. This was like the centerpiece of their culture was this moon god. It's, like, it's what they would worship uh, at this massive temple that we've even discovered in archaeology. And so Abe has, has left this city behind. Everything that he knew, everything he knew about his religion, everything he knew about his family, his comfort, his job, his work, everything... And he, he left good weather, he left good land, he, he left advanced technology, maybe a thriving business to go. God only knows where, literally. <laughs> like he, he's the only one who knows where he's going. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like for example, landing your, uh, your first big job here downtown Indy. And right before you move into your corner office on the 49th floor of the Salesforce Tower, you decide to pack up and move to northern Canada to carve out a business selling air conditioners to people who own igloos. You're like, well, that, that's not going to go very well. Like, why would you do that, right? But, but that's kind of what, that's essentially what Abe does. I mean, he just, he leaves everything behind. He, he abandons kind of conventional thinking of building out a secure life, making things easy, going with the flow. In essence, Abraham rebelled against what he knew and went out into the unknown. And so God calls him to go to a land he's never seen, probably never heard of. And God didn't give him a postcard God didn't give him an infomercial to watch about it, about what it's going to look like. He didn't bring up pics of the land on his Instagram account, right? He didn't do any of that stuff. It didn't exist back then, by the way. Um, he didn't have, he didn't give him directions. He didn't give him a backpack, right, with a map in the back that goes, you know, it gives us a little jingle. I'm a map, I'm a map, I'm a map, I'm a map. Any Door of the Explorer fans? Just that couple, couple, you got them? Okay, good. I watched that a lot when I was, my kids were little. I always think about that. All right, uh, it haunts me in my dreams. Anyway, he just started walking. He just started walking. He's got no map. He's got nothing, okay? And this was, this is again, not conventional thinking in a way. Uh, and it wasn't just for one part of his life. Get this. This was for his entire life was like this. Think about how it kind of went with God. God said to Abraham one day, showed up and said, go. Abraham's like, where? God says, I'll, I'll tell you later. Just go. God said, Abraham, I want you to settle down. Abraham goes, when? He goes, I don't know. I'll tell you later. Just, just wander around for a bit. God says, I'll give you a son. Abraham goes, how? He goes, I'll tell you later. Just get busy and, and, and we'll have it happen. God says, uh, take your son and offer him as a sacrifice. Abe goes, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just climb the mountain. I mean, it's really, it was, his whole life was like that, right? It was, he, didn't, he didn't really have any certainty of exactly what was going to happen. He just had to trust what God was saying. His whole life was one of faith, and then subsequently, rebellion against the culture wants all the answers up front before they make any decisions. Listen, Abe never did possess this land. You know that? He never actually possessed the land that God told him to go to. The only land he ever owned, if you read the whole story in the Old Testament of, uh, of Abraham and his family, the only land he ever owned was land he bought to bury his wife in. That's it. It's the only land he ever owned. He was literally a foreigner uh, without native or civil rights. And that's, uh, Abe never knew on earth the full realization of God's promise for a permanent home for himself and his descendants. God's call to him was enough for him. God himself was enough for him. And so he courageously went out into the unknown. He responded to the uncertain future with confidence in God's word. He rebelled against the culture of convenience and safety and security and stability. He lived a life of dissonance, one that didn't fit in with the culture around him. Can you imagine the ridicule he got from friends and family as he left all that stuff behind? He wasn't anti-cultural, but he was counter-cultural. Most of us live uh, very cautious lives. 
right, on the principle of, you know, safety first. But to live the Christian life, understand this now, revolves a certain sense of recklessness and rebellion, willingness to go against the unknown. Uh, culture uh, says plan out every step, pad your life, have things, fall, have things to fall back on. My faith in Jesus, he just says follow me into whatever that may look like. And listen, uh, don't, don't hear me wrong here. I'm all for planning. I have a plan as a, as a, as a husband and a father. I have a plan. I got laid out. I've got security. I've saved up some things. I'm not saying throw everything away and don't ever have a plan. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that you have to understand there's an element of following Jesus that there's a sense of trusting, you know, that he's just faithful and he's going to take care of us. That you don't know exactly how that's all going to work out. You don't have all the answers. You know how it's all going to be laid out for you. You're just going to follow Jesus no matter what may come as a result. William Borden was a, a graduate of Yale back in 1909. He then graduated from what was uh, Princeton Theological Seminary a few years later. He decided to become a missionary. You may not think that was much, much of anything, but he went to be a, a missionary to the Muslims of northern China despite an extremely wealthy family that he was from. And they didn't understand his decision, right? They felt like he was throwing his life away as a result. And that's what it seemed like in the culture's eyes because he died. He, he died of cerebral, uh, cerebral meningitis in Egypt during his training at age 25. He never even made it to the place that he was going to. Um, he, as a result of when he died, he bequeathed a million dollars to the China Inland Mission as a result. When he was, after he died, they, they gave his parents uh, his Bible, and in his Bible they found uh, notes in there. They found the words, no reserve, uh, and a date placing it at the note shortly after he renounced his fortune in favor of doing missions. At a later point, he wrote a, wrote a phrase, no retreat, dating shortly after his father told him he would never work in his company ever. Shortly before he died in Egypt, he added the phrase, no regrets, to his Bible. That was a man of faith. That was a man of rebellion, walking in the shoes of Abraham, right? No reserve, no retreat, no regrets, whatever that may be. And the man died at 25, not even fulfilling, going where he felt God was calling him to go. Yet it was worth it, right? If you're a Christian, then you are a rebel, and your life is one of dissonance, just like these guys in our letter of Hebrews who first received the letter. They didn't fit in with their culture, right? We've talked about this a lot in Hebrews. They, they didn't fit in in Rome. They were rejected by everybody around them. Their own family kind of kicked them out. Um, they didn't fit in, nor do we, in a way. And again, we aren't anti-cultural, but we're counter-cultural. We live for, as, as they're going to say in Hebrews 11, we live for a season that is to come, which is why it makes us such great citizens of where we currently are. We don't need it, but we love it. Or as we say here, we heart it, I guess. We heart Brownsburg. Um, because, you know, Jesus loves it, right? We don't live for the applause of this place. We live for the applause of what is to come, right? That great promise causes us to live foolish lives, quote-unquote, here in the eyes of other people because we live a life of sacrifice. We live a life of service. And we live a life of giving. And we just seek to, to live for what is to come. So what is it about your life that can only be explained as you living for eternity? a new earth, a city that is to come? How are you rebelling against the culture and sacrifice and giving and in service? What is different about your life because of your faith? That's number one. Number two, faith involves resolution. Verse nine, continue with Abraham here, says, by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He's looking forward to the city as foundations and design and builder is God. So the text says he lived in tents. All right, that's an important part of this text. Lived in tents. In a foreign land, it says. A tent meant that you were vulnerable. 
A tent meant that you were an outcast. A tent meant you had no permanency, right? Dwelling in tents was the way of travelers and nomads and crazy people who like to go camping today, right? Um, if you're new, I don't like camping, so I seek to make fun of it every chance I get. All right. And even in Abe's day, tents were considered, they were not considered permanent residents, okay? It wasn't a permanent way to live. Not only Abe, but his son and his grandson lived out their lives in tents, even though we know Abe had a lot of money. We know that through the text. He was, he had, he was pretty wealthy. And they, they even lived in the promised land, and yet they didn't possess it. But he resolved to be patient. He resolved to wait. He resolved to trust God. He plugged away, though he saw very little fruit, as it were, from his labor. He waited a long time, right, for the son of promise, which he finally did get towards the end of his life. And he waited all of his life for the land of promise, which he did not get. He resolved to make make much of Jesus just in the tent. Much of his life was lived out in the tent, right? That's what God is calling us to do a lot of times, resolve to live for Jesus in kind of the ordinariness of life, right? Isn't most of life lived in the tent? You're kind of like, all right, we always wait for the big event to happen, but most of life is kind of the routine, mundane, ordinary parts of life. In order to make much of Jesus in the tents of life, we must resolve to be patient like Abraham was. We don't see Abe in Genesis narrative, you know, ripping up tent pegs and going, where's my permanent home at now? I'm tired of waiting. No, we just lived it out. We don't like to be patient. We don't like to wait around. We don't like the routine, right? We want the next step, the next thing. Uh, We're adrenaline junkies unable to deal with the monotony of most of life. We were faithful in pursuing Jesus day after day. And yet what happens in life when we do that, and yet there's no kind of fireworks going off, we kind of feel like something's wrong, right? We start looking around going like, where's all the, where's the fireworks at? And when we make big decisions, which are few and far between in life, we feel excitement, we feel thrill of that, and at the moment of achievement, there is this glow and glory of kind of satisfaction, but in the intervening times of life, which is most of life, in the mundane, that's where we need the faith to wait and to work and to watch when nothing else seems to be really happening that's too glorious, right? Most of Abe's life, again, was spent in a tent in a foreign land just kind of waiting for the next thing. But making much of Jesus during that time. God doesn't always call us to move. Sometimes, many times, he calls us to wait. Much of life, again, is spit playing kind of the waiting game, right? If you've lived long enough, you kind of understand that. It's just a lot of life. And it's not that the real spiritual stuff happens when the dramatic happens or when we get called to kind of move or do something new. Worship of Jesus happens in the ordinariness of life, in the routines, in the tent. Romans 12, 1 and 2 would talk about all of our life is a sacrifice to God. All of our life is, is worship to God. I like uh, the, um, the message translation, which is, a tran- which is a paraphrase, just so you know. But I like the way he, they, they translated it out. and said, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Every single piece of life. Offer it all there. And this makes all of life spiritual. Work. School, raising children, hobbies, friendships, repairing gutters, commuting, taking out the trash, grocery shopping, rocking a sick baby, making peanut butter and jelly sandwich for the fifth night in a row, right, for your kids, cleaning toilets, playing soccer, like the whole thing, every bit of it is all of life. All of that's lived in that tent. It's kind of the ordinariness of life. Don't miss out on the opportunity to worship and make much of Jesus in the mundane, routine parts of life, right? 
be present, resolve to make much of Jesus in that, that part of, of life. Number three, faith involves the ridiculous. So here we have verse 11 and 12. This is kind of a story maybe, maybe you're familiar with. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, and she considered him faithful, who had promised, therefore from one man, and him as good as dead. <laughs> I kind of love the, the uh, commentary of the Hebrews writer. He, he kind of threw Abe under the bus there. Him as good as dead, we're born, we're born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, right? So, so he's telling the story. Like, it's impossible. These guys were, they were older. And the, and the writer of Hebrews, in some ways, sort of glamorizes this a little bit, in a sense that if you go back and read it, you'll find a lot more of the story in Genesis, and Sarah wasn't all in at the beginning, right? She wasn't like, yeah, this is awesome. Let's believe we, uh, t- God's totally going to do this. That's not how it worked out. She actually laughed at the idea. You say, why? Why, why, why would she laugh when God said she's going to have a child? What's the big deal? It's because her, her and Abe, they weren't just past baby conceiving years, if you follow my drift here. They were past baby making years, all right? They were pushing triple digits here. It was, they were way up there, and they were like, there's no way that this is going to possibly happen. I love how, the, again, the message translation in the Genesis account puts it this way. Sarah laughed within herself, and she said, An old woman like me get pregnant with this old man of a husband? <laughs> I'm, I just imagine Abraham, this is my kind of imagination, but I imagine Abraham like any man going like, Well, look, I'm not dead yet. I think it, I think it still works. Let's give it a try. And she's like, hey, In your dreams, man. I mean, I mean they, were like, they were like 90s. I know some of you are like, I do not want to visualize that. I'm just... It's there somewhere. All right. Um, yet Abe and Sarah, despite initial skepticism, right, and it, which totally makes sense, we understand the skepticism, like how is this even possible, decided to believe God, even though it didn't all make sense to them. The expectation box, maybe they tried to fit God into, he kind of blew that apart, right? Totally blew that apart. How many times do we put God in the box of our own expectations? We believe he can only do what we can imagine him doing or reasonably understand him doing. But God isn't like us. And he tells us this over and over in the Bible, so we'll get it, right? He's not like us. Uh, listen to a couple of passages. Isaiah 50, verse 2. God speaking, says, Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Isaiah 59, 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Numbers eleven twenty three. The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? All that's just saying, look, is are you trying to limit me in what I can do? My hand's plenty long enough. I can reach and do anything that I want to do beyond what you guys think. And that's why I love how Paul put it, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He's like, I, I can do way more than you can even imagine. Your friends, faith causes you to build a crib at age 90 because God said you're going to have a baby. Faith sees the invisible, faith hears the inaudible, faith touches the intangible, and faith accomplishes the impossible. It's deaf to doubt, it is dumped in discouragement, and blind to impossibility. Now, I know you hear this story, and it seems a little bit off your radar. You're like, this is kind of really far-fetched, it's really out there. I mean, this is almost ridiculous to believe, physically impossible, and yet they believed, and God came through. How in the world does that apply to us? How does this apply? Why? I believe Abe and Sarah practiced what I'll call reasonable ridiculousness. Okay, follow me for a moment here. All right, more R's for you, but reasonable ridiculousness. They considered him faithful who had promised. Now get this, they, they weighed the human impossibility of becoming parents against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and lying. And they weighed those two and decided, well, since God is God, nothing's impossible, right? So even Sarah used reason 
Not blind faith. Their faith rested in God's authoritative word. God said it. It doesn't make sense to us, but it's a greater weight to it, so this is what's going to work. This is a rational decision in many ways because there was a greater chance of them having a baby at 100 than God lying. So we're to live reasonably ridiculous lives. And we are aware that God's word says something. We're to rationally assess it. Does God's word say that? Or is that someone else's interpretation of that? Is that actually what he is saying? And if God's word indeed does say it, then we must, must, uh, supremely, it must be supremely rational, weighing the human impossibility against the divine impossibility of God breaking his word, and we must believe. It is. It's a, it's a weighing of those two things. You say, what does that look like? Let me give you a couple examples. That looks like believing that God loves you when you have a miscarriage. Believing that God loves you when you lose a child or when you lose a spouse. It's believing that God is sovereign and a nailed-down refuge for you when everything in your life seems to be not nailed down and spinning and out of control. It's believing that God is for you and not against you when you lose your job or maybe your spouse walks out on you or your child rejects the faith and walks away. It looks like believing God is a rewarder of those who seek him, being willing to part with your money, invest in eternity, and go without as a result. It looks like believing God is wise, and thus taking him at his word that he is better than the shortcuts that you're taking right now, that he is better than the justifications that you're making. He's better than the compromises that you're making. That's why faith involves the ridiculous, right? It goes against our own bent human nature of sin and wanting to go the opposite direction. It goes against the culture that's out there. And it goes, you know what? It, it does sound ridiculous, but I'm going to go with what God says as opposed to what I want to do or what my culture tells me to do. Number four, faith involves relinquishment. 17 through 19, we find Abraham offered up Isaac, and, uh, and he, he received the promise, was, was in the act of offering up his only son, to whom it said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So God had promised Abraham that he would fulfill. Now, let's get back in Abraham's shoes for a minute. God had promised Abraham that he would fulfill all of his good promises through Isaac. Isaac is the man. He is the one we're going to fulfill all these promises through. Sarah had, had Isaac, and they, can you imagine just their story for a second? When Abe and Sarah had Isaac, they, they took that baby in their kind of age-spotted hands, and they held him close to their wrinkled faces, right? You can hear him kind of giggling more than Isaac is, right? As they have this baby, it is unreal, it is, it is beyond imagination. This boy was everything to them. And as he grew up, you can imagine, as every parent does, they, they saw glimpses of themselves in him. Maybe they argued over who he resembles more than the other, you know, and they're doing all of that. Life was good. Right, the journey of life had been hard. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of struggle. But they held on to the promises, and they got their boy. Right? You can imagine they can sit on the front porch of their tent <laughs> for the rest of her life and sip their sweet tea and enjoy the good life. Right? This, is, this is how it's going to end, right? It's not how it goes. And one day, God comes to Abe again and says, Abe, go, go sacrifice him. You're like, what? Go sacrifice him. Can you imagine the immediate horror that fell on Abraham's face and soul, his stomach beginning to churn. But at dawn, as the story in Genesis goes, without a word to Sarah, by the way, he takes Isaac. He splits some wood, he saddles the donkey, he grabs two servants and Isaac, and off they go to the mountains. It took three days to get there. Can you imagine that journey for three days? Three days. Can you imagine what was going through Abraham's mind? Can you imagine the scenes playing through his mind of Isaac growing up, the birthday parties, the funny quotes, 
You know, the times that uh, when Isaac first discovered ants or when he first discovered how a rock would roll down, you know, down the hill. Or the times Isaac got hurt and he hugged him and told him everything would be okay. All those, play, all those thoughts playing through his mind, those three-day journey, probably very little if no sleep during those three days, knowing what God had told him to do. Isaac, imagine him following along. He's clueless. He's probably chewing on his gum, you know, and pointing out different things as he sees along the journey, thinking he's going on a daddy-do time, right? We're going to go camping with dad um, kind of thing. So they get to the base of the mountain. Abe told the servants to wait, right? And uh, that's how it goes. And him and his son are going to go worship and come back. That's how the story of Genesis goes. We're going to go worship and come back. That's why it says in Hebrews, he believed that, I guess, maybe God's going to just raise him from the dead. So Abe placed the wood in the back of his son, slipped a dagger into his belt, and began to climb. You can hear Isaac talking up a storm while Abe is, it all kind of maybe sound like background noise, right? What in the world was going on? How could this be happening? What is God doing with all of this? And Genesis says when they got to the top, Isaac says, Daddy, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? We got wood, we got fire, we don't have a lamb. So Abe said, God will provide a lamb. They made the altar. Isaac laid on top of it, trusting his dad, even though he could have run away, no doubt. His dad was pushing 100. He could have easily uh, wrestled him and got out of it and ran away, but he laid down. No doubt tears are flowing down Abe's wrinkled cheeks, his eyes bloodshot from the lack of sleep he's had, memory after memory entering his mind. Abraham's heart pounds. His eyes blinked to clear the vision of tears, and suddenly he lifted up the knife. He went to go bring it down. He heard this, Genesis 22, verse 11, 12. Abraham, Abraham. He said, here am I. God said, do not lay your hand on that boy. Do not do anything to him. For I know that now you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. I imagine Abe struggled with this. <laughs> he didn't know how this was all going to turn out. I mean, he, he reasoned that God was able to raise the dead, but not that God would, right? It says that God is able to do so. I mean, Isaac was, was all of Abe's hopes. Everything was centered on him. But he knew when he left his servants that somehow they were going to go back. They were going to worship and they were going to return, as the Genesis account says. Even if that meant resurrection, which, by the way, Abraham had never seen before. So he knew if he knew what that looked like. Can you imagine if that would have happened? Can you imagine, in fact, if actually that would have happened, that God would have, he would have killed him, raised, raised him from the dead, brought him back. Can you imagine that conversation with Sarah? No more daddy-do times, right? You're not going out with him anymore, right? If, you, if he did, we're going we're gonna to be like TSA agents, and we're going to check everything, make sure you have no knives on you. But Abe reasoned that this was, this was now God's problem to solve. Basically, it's what he did. This is God's problem. It wasn't a smooth ride. No doubt Abe had had his doubts and had his battles. Right? Your faith will be tested at times, just like his. There will be times of uncertainty and doubt and even despair. People of faith do have doubts. People, they, we do wrestle. Christianity is a struggle at times. I love, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. So true, though, right? I certainly don't recommend. If you really want to follow what Jesus says, I, if you want comfort, he didn't promise comfort at all. He said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me and die. Right? That's not comfortable. So what do we learn from this story? The main thing we learn is that faith involves this relinquishment. It involves surrender of the most treasured things of our lives to God. And that doesn't mean it'll be easy. It almost never is. Parting with our most treasured possessions or dreams is like tearing the flesh off our bones. But we have to relinquish everything to Jesus. 
Notice Abe was to offer here, it talks about the ram he offered was a, was a whole. He offered the whole thing. In the Old Testament, this is called a whole burnt offering. Um, and that's what he was supposed to do. What does that mean? This means Abe had to give all of his son over to God, not part of him. Many offerings in the Old Testament were shared between priest and the offerer, right? They would get some of the, the meat of the animal, and that's kind of how they provided for them. But there was these things called whole burnt offerings, where they would take the entire animal, burn the entire thing. Now, initially, you may think, like, why would they do that? Why would God want them to burn the whole thing? Like, that's a waste of meat. You could have given that to the priest or whatever. Or why did God do that? Because he wanted to see their hearts, right? God didn't need the animal. Same with the offering of Isaac. It was Abe offering to God everything, every bit of it, all the way to the bottom of his soul. And we all have our Isaacs, right, that Jesus wants us to give him as a whole burnt offering, whatever those are. The whole thing, not pieces of it, not part of it, but the whole entire thing. For some of you, maybe it's your dreams, maybe it's your future, your, your money, maybe it's your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, your security. And it's scary because when you lay it on the altar and you set it on fire, God might resurrect it or he might not. That's kind of scary, isn't it? You're going like, well, I don't really know how this is going to go. I got, I got to completely trust him with this. I can't have a backup plan. He's not promised to resurrect your dreams. He's not promised to give you big paychecks. Uh, but he has promised to be faithful to, to you and to love you. And some of, some of you would argue like Abe, you mean, come on, God. I mean, I've left everything. I've left my homeland. I've left my friends, my family. I've wandered out here into, into no man's land following you and, you. and you still want Isaac too? I mean, I've given you everything. Why, why do you want this too? And God's saying yes. And what is God trying to do? He's trying to decenter your heart of anything that's not him. Try to decenter it so that the very center of your soul and heart is God himself and God alone and not pieces. And the reason we're so scared to offer these things up to God is because we feel, right, we feel that if we do what the Word of God says, if we do what the Spirit of God is calling us to do, it'll make us miserable, right? We're going to be miserable, and there's no way that God could turn all this out for good. We can't see how obeying God and surrendering all will lead to blessing. For some of you, it's facing the fact that God wants you to stay married. For others of you, maybe God wants you to stay single. For some of you, it's you need to stay at your job that you're at. For others of you, maybe it's leave your job. Still others of you, it's go get a job, right? For some of you, it's to, it's to get baptized. It's a very big deal to you. Some of you, it's you need to become a member of the church. Others of you, you need to be vocal about your faith. Others refuse to compromise your integrity. And as you see it in your limited mind, the prospect of doing any of this is terrible. It's kind of like the loss of Isaac. You've considered every human angle, and it's impossible to think how it will turn out for well, but Jesus calls us to relinquish it all, everything and every bit of it, and to follow him. He said in Luke 9, 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll save it. Do you believe that? Lastly, faith involves remittance. Verse 20 gives us a story here of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph. And I use the word remittance because it's the word typically used in our culture to refer to the transfer of money by a foreign worker to his or her home country. Okay? It's a passing on. It's a transmitting of what you have uh, and, and, um, and what you make to those close to you, especially to your children. And that's exactly what we see going on in this text. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all very flawed men. You can read their stories. Isaac followed his father's footsteps uh, lying about his wife, eventually caring more about himself than he did for her. 
Uh, he was materialistic. Uh, he favored Esau because he could, he could hunt, right, make him tasty ribeyes or something. Like, it was very, very worldly in that way. And there was Jacob, who deceived his brother Esau, spent most of his life in fear, was in exile in Egypt. And then there's Joseph. You're like, oh, Joseph was a great guy. Well, he started off by taunting and mocking his brothers um, in, in terms of he was a, his father's favorite and all of that. You say, then why are these guys mentioned as people of faith then? Why are they in there if they have all these flaws? It all had to do with how they, how they pressed on despite their failures and sins and came to the end of their lives clinging to the promises of God. And not just clinging to them, get this now, but passing them on to their children as a result. Each of these guys said, in essence, God's promises are true, for, for he never breaks a promise. I may not live to see it. Death may come to me before the, that promise becomes a fact, but I, I am a link in that fulfillment. I'm going to pass this on to my children, who hopefully pass it on to their children and pass it on to their children. They all had this forward-looking aspect of faith. Each one faced death full, uh, in full, confident faith. And they all died, like Abraham, without seeing or experiencing the promises. They passed them on in faith to generation after generation. They believed what they had never seen and passed on what they had never seen to their children. They had nothing other than the promises of God to go on, and they passed it on. They remitted it to them. Right? There, are, there are two ways to live in life. One way, the, by far the most common way, is to live by sight. Base everything on what you see. The other way, far less common, is to live life by faith, to base your life primarily and ultimately on what you cannot see. Think about what we cannot see that we base our life on. We've never seen the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. We've never seen heaven, and we've never seen hell. We've never seen any of the people who wrote the Bible. We've never even seen the original manuscript of the Bible. And yet, we live in the conviction of all these things being true by faith, knowing that they help make sense of what we see. We bank our earthly lives and our eternal destiny on things which we have never seen. That's pretty radical. And we pass that faith on to our children. Every person in this list is a subsequent generation. Do you notice that as Hebrews 11 goes through, it's the next generation? Faith passes on faith. And let me just say something to you parents for a moment, because I've heard this statement before. If you sit here today, and you go, you know what, I I don't want to impose my beliefs on my children. I want them to make up their own minds. I want them to believe because, you know, not because I told them, but because they make it up for themselves. Just know how idiotic that sounds, okay? Just, if I offend you, I'm sorry, but it's true. If you don't give them something, or actually someone, to believe in, then someone else will give them something to believe in. Don't be naive, right? Your children and friends, uh, your children and their friends are not going to just passively weigh the options. They're going to be influenced by somebody. I sure hope it's you. I sure hope it's you, right? Someone's going to persuade them, not just in words, but in life and in love and by experience. I pray that you live that out enough, not just what you say, but how you live passes on that faith to your children. Some say, you know what, uh, Chris, I, I, this is just all too much. <laughs> I mean, we talk about this faith, and it's, it's, it's too much. You, 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 what you think in your mind is either, God is either God's going to fail you, or more likely what may be going through your mind is, you know what, I'm just going to fail him, or maybe a combination of both. And you know what, Abraham had that same question. Abraham knew that. He's like, God, how do I know this is going to be true? How do I know that if I fail, that this is still going to happen? And you know what God did? God made a covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament. And God said, uh, Abraham said, how can I trust you? God said, let me show you. He has Abraham go, go kill some animals, cut them in half. It's kind of really gory. Put them on two sides of the road. Uh, Abraham's there kind of swatting away flies in the story, you know. And all of a sudden, God makes a deep sleep come on him. And then, boop, he passes out. 
And God himself passes through these animals. You're like, why in the world? What is that story about? And it was all about a covenant. It was about a deal. It was God saying basically you know, how, how covenants would work back then. They were pretty bloody ordeals. They would make a covenant between two people, like a business transaction. Be like, all right, I promise to fulfill this, and you promise to fulfill this. And they'd cut an animal up, and they'd walk between the two, and they'd say, if I don't fulfill my deal, right, if I don't follow through, may I become like one of these animals. And that was kind of how it was a symbolizing uh, of what they were supposed to do, right? It was a consequence of what they, if they didn't do it. God passed through all by himself without Abraham going through. Why? It was an unconditional covenant. God was saying, in essence, to Abraham, Abraham, you will fail me. <laughs> and even if you do fail me, this has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with me. And that's why God went through all by himself, right? That's what it was all about. It was unconditional. And this is why Abe's hope was in the unconditional promise being fulfilled in none other than the Messiah, the personal work of Jesus would come. You say, did Abraham know about that? He sure did. John eight fifty six, Jesus speaking, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. You're like, wow, he knew that? Yeah, everything about Abraham's life mirrored Jesus. Jesus would obey the call of God completely. Jesus would go, would go out, would leave the ultimate comforts of glory, be the ultimate rebel to the culture of his day. As, as for his resolve, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even live in tents. He would live on the ground. He'd spend the last three years of his life, no place to lay his head. He could have been with the rich, he was, yet he was frequently in the poor. Like Abraham, he would ascend the mountain. He would do so alone with the wood on his back. He would climb upon the altar of the cross willingly. And get this, the father would not yell out, hold back your hand. But instead, the father would allow men to plunge the knife into the back of his own son. Why? So that we could be forgiven. So that the covenant could be sealed. So it would be all about Jesus and not about us. So that we could guarantee that he would fulfill his promises despite our failures or lack of faith in them. And so as a result, we would pass that on to our children. That's faith, my friends. That's what it, it's all about Jesus. All this about here is not about us being, all right, I'm going to have greater faith now. It, it is all about trusting in the person and work of Christ who came to fulfill all of that for us. And in response to that, living in faith as a result. So how's your faith this morning? We looked at five different kind of aspects of it, right? Lots of different, lots of different stuff here, lots of different places to go after it. As we go to communion, we give the opportunity for you to reflect. Grab one of those five. Zero in on one of them, right? Think through, ask the Spirit of God to, to evaluate and search your heart. If you're a Christian today, this is, we do this, and we take communion in the front and the back. is bread, there's juice. Uh, we do that in remembrance of the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do it in remembrance of him. If you're not a Christian, uh, this is not for you, okay? But if you want to know more about, about faith, you want to know more about who, what Christianity is, who Jesus is, uh, what does it look like to be in a relationship with God? We would love to help you with that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at faith again uh, this week. Uh, Lord, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty radical when we consider what the, what the New Testament has to say about uh, faith and how our lives actually are lived out. God, make us, more, uh, make us more like what the New Testament says. Cause our lives to reflect more of what you say and not what our culture says. Cause our values, uh, what we love, what we cherish, what we worship to be you instead of what our world tells us to do. God, would you uh, continue to work on us, help us to live lives of sacrifice, lives of service, lives of giving. Uh, help us to follow, as Abraham did, closely, even though we don't know where we're going at times, we don't know all the answers. But God, we would trust you. Strengthen our faith today, God, that we can live 
live out uh, life making much of you and, and go tell others about you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.